And the last two weeks, if you haven't been with us, we have put sort of a spotlight in Genesis chapter 2 on marriage and sexuality, gender, roles, men and women. And if you have not been with us up to this point, you may have a similar experience to what I had recently when I took our youngest daughter, Virginia, to see the Avengers movie Endgame. Okay, so, so she and I went, and you know, there's 20 plus movies in the Marvel Universe, and, and I've seen some of them and enjoyed some of them, but I am by no means a Marvel nerd or Marvel expert. I'm not like some of you men who wear your Iron Man pajamas to bed every night. I'm not, I'm not that guy. But I'm, but I'm watching the movie, and don't get me wrong, it's a great movie, I know it's a good movie, I'm entertained, but as I'm walking through it, I'm realizing, you know, not all of this is making complete sense. I, I have a sense I probably need to go back and w- binge watch the rest of those movies. I, I need to like fit in all the missing pieces here so the storyline can kind of come together. And if you have not been with us these past couple of weeks, or, or, or maybe you aren't even a Christian, or you haven't been in church in a long time, a lot of what we're going to talk about this morning, you may have some of that same sort of experience. You kind of get the sense that, hey, I'm I'm missing a few pieces here. You're saying some things that I don't quite understand, I don't quite get. And a couple couple places I would point you, number one, um, go online, Four Oaks Church, fouroakskalarn.com, the hub, you can listen to these sermons online. But let me just kind of briefly retrace kind of where we've, where we've been. First, we've looked at this idea that God created man and woman. He created gender. We, we emphasize this idea that gender is not a social construct. Um, gender is a God-given piece of who we are as men and women. We believe that God created men and women equal dignity, both in the image of God, but with different roles, um, created differently, uniquely, that our gifting is meant to complement one another. We looked at this idea that marriage um, is, again, not a social construct. A ma- marriage is not to be revised, as Ray Ortland says, it's to be revered. And, and all these things are sort of stakes that we've put in the ground that kind of lead us up to Genesis chapter 3. Because we left off last time looking at this idea that man was created to be the head, that woman was created to be the helper. And, and we want to we see sort of what Adam and Eve do with this. Ray Ortland says this. This is, a, this is a great quote. He says, the, the delicate interplay between male head and female helper is not a mutation in human social evolution to be replaced by later developments. It is a stroke of divine genius, original to our existence. Rightly understood and beautifully lived out, God's wise creation of head with helper is a permanent and glorious reality, a pathway to human flourishing. There's a lot in that. I encourage you to go back and listen to those Sermons that we left off last week was sort of a double dog dare for the men. Remember this, men? We said, don't watch the PGA Championship, okay? But sit down with your spouse and ask her how, how you are doing as head. And wives, to ask your husband how 
you are doing as helper. And, and one of you was, was really cute. You, you texted me a picture, one of the men here, of, of you watching the PGA Championship on TV, and you had the caption, my wife says I'm good. So anyway, congratulations. <laughs> that was one of our elders, by the way, which left me highly concerned. But today, Genesis 3, because we're going to just do an overview of Genesis 3, um, specifically through the lens of marriage. We're going to come back in the next couple of weeks and unpack it in details. We talk about sin, the devil, temptation. But we want to have a specific marital lens. What went wrong with this beautiful design? What, what went wrong and what are we to do about it? I'm going to invite you to stand. As we stand, just, just again a reminder that it's not culture, it's not the media, it's not Instagram, it's not our peers, it's not our neighbors, it's not even ourselves that have the ultimate authority on these matters. It is God speaking through his word. We're actually going to pick this up at the end of Genesis chapter 2, beginning verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's end the reading of God's holy inspired word. May he write its truths upon our hearts. You may take your seats. One of the books that I recommended last week, I'm going to recommend it again. I'm going to quote from it several times. I already have quoted from it some this morning is Ray Ortland's book, Ray Ortland Jr., Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel. Um, Pastor Ray, uh, pastor's up in in Nashville, Tennessee, Um, and it's an excellent theological study of the overview of the whole of of marriage through the whole Bible. But one of the things that, that Pastor Ray says right at the onset of this book that should really get our attention. It's very sobering when we come to Genesis chapter 3. He says this, Every marriage 
is just five minutes away from disaster. Now, we, we, we know that these choices don't materialize out of thin air. We understand that there's always complexities and things build up, but it's, it should not lessen the impact that we, we, we understand this, right? Five minutes, that's, a, that's how long it can literally take to completely change the trajectory of your life, your marriage, your family. And it really puts into focus, doesn't it, the magnitude of our choices maritally, sexually, students. It puts into, into, into focus who you are right now, that this has a bearing on who you're going to be, who you're going to be in your future marriages. It, it, it plays into our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Because we understand that the dissolution of a marriage impacts everyone. We are going to see in the coming weeks the, the dynamics of sin and temptation. But it is, make no mistake, Four Oaks, it is not coincidental that Satan specifically targets the, 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 the sort of the pinnacle of God's creation of man and woman made to be together in marriage. And just like in our lives, when a marriage dissolves and how it touches everyone and everything, we're going to see that this is exactly what happens in creation. In fact, Ortland says, it was the breakdown of the marriage that broke everything. And we know that it's often, very often, often true for so, for so many of us, so many of you. And it's interesting, this passage begins with a play on words that you can't see in the English, but it's there in the Hebrew, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contrast that sort of comes out. It's a play on words. If you look back in verse 25 of chapter 2, where it says, "...and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Then in verse 1 it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts. Now that Hebrew word for naked and the word for crafty sound almost identical. They're, 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 they look similar, they're spelled in a similar way. Um, the Hebrews reading this would have totally gotten the, the contrast that Moses was, was attempting to make. Aram and Aram. As Bruce Walke would say, if you want to put this in English vernacular, it's almost as if Moses is saying, the man and the woman were nude, but the serpent was shrewd. See, that, that is even in their most innocent of places, in that holy of places, Satan was attempting to deconstruct the very fabric and fiber of God's moral order and creation and seemingly it worked. It's not the end of the story, but it's certainly no less than that. And so, so two points we want to look at today, and, and this is going to be applicable first to marriage, but then to all of us and all of our choices. But we're going to look at, first of all, what happened, number one, and number two, what do we do about it? What happened and what do we do about it? Verse six has one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture. It's one that has inspired fairy tales like Snow White and themes in vampire movies. But verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate. And as FDR said of, of 
the events on Pearl Harbor, this was a choice that will live in infamy. Even if you are not a Christian, even if you've never been in church, most likely you have seen this theme woven into some book, to some movie, um, some storyline. We, we feel like we, we've heard this so many times. This is how the fall of man hap- happened. We, Eve took this fruit. It looked good to her. She ate it. She was deceived. But I want us to notice a couple of peculiar aspects of this story that I don't think always receive our attention that I think Moses sort of puts in here. I think it's, it's, I don't even think it's subtle. I just think we need to draw it out some. Look at verse six for a second. One of the most common questions when it comes to, to this story is where in the world was Adam, right? Was, was, was Adam off chopping wood was he, was he hanging out? Was he, not to be crude, going to the bathroom? I don't know if they went to the bathroom in the garden. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. But, but a lot of times we're, we're wondering, like, what's happening while this whole dialogue between Eve and this snake is, is happening? In, in verse 6, it actually tells us. It says that she's having this dialogue. She's taking this piece of fruit. She took it. Now, listen, look at verse 6. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her? I think if we looked at, we don't have time to do this, if we unpack the Hebrew that's sort of underneath this, the implication is that Adam actually wasn't anywhere. He was just there, right with her the whole time. And, and if you were here last week, you know why that is significant. Because it was to Adam that God had given the responsibility as the head to guard and keep the garden. It was his responsibility to communicate and teach God's word to Eve. I don't think it's, it's, incidental that, that it's coincidental that it says that Eve was deceived. So, see, remember, these injunctions, these This creation was given to Adam prior to the creation of Eve. As such, it was his responsibility for everything that happened in the garden. Metaphorically, he was on the couch watching TV, right? He was digging into golf or the PGA Championship. He was sort of letting life happen all around him. Men, you, you know this dynamic, right? You're there, but you're not there. Your, your wife is sort of the, the sun in the family orbit, in the family solar system. And everything's sort of orbiting around her, and you're sort of over there. You're here, but you're not there. And you might like bark out a request or a thought or a comment or opinion along the way. But ultimately, you and I both know that place where all of that responsibility seems to lie upon her, something she was not designed to bear. This really explains, does it not, look at verse 9, that when both of them eat of the the fruit of the tree, verse 9 tells us, the Lord God called to whom, guys? To you. He called to me. In fact, he doesn't even mention Eve at this point. He doesn't go to Eve first. The, 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 the Hebrew tense of the, of the word you is in the singular. 
the idea is that God went on a search and hunt mission specifically to have a conversation with Adam because Adam was the head. He was responsible. Now we understand, don't we, why Paul, when writing about this in Romans 5.12, says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world, how, men, through one man. But Pastor Paul, it says Eve was absolutely culpable. She was deceived. But Adam was responsible. See, I think this is what Paul, one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible, 1 Timothy 2.14 where Paul's giving instructions about the order of the church in light of creation. And here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. He says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Men, hear me on this. This is not Paul's way of complimenting Adam. Like that, that Eve, she was just completely off. I mean, the man, he was innocent. He was there. He was hanging out. He, he was, he was going to get around to doing that. Particular, no, that, that's not what Paul means here. Paul's insinuation is that Adam, in contrast to Eve, knew the truth. He, he was not deceived, which made what happened for him far worse as he just sort of stood there and let life happen all around him. He sort of watched the the train wreck unfold. He wasn't deceived, men. He just lacked courage. He just lacked conviction. He just lacked initiative. And this is why in verse 17, we didn't read this, but look down in verse 17, God pronounces a curse on Adam, and he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, Guys, listen, the word listen literally means obey. The idea is that because, Adam, you went along with this even when you knew the truth, I'm coming to you first. I'm tapping you on the shoulder. I'm reminding you that you were called to stay at your post and you deserted. See, the reason Satan went to Eve Not because she was weaker, not because she was inferior, not because she wasn't as smart. It's because he knew doing so subverted God's design and created order that Adam was to be the head. You know, Paul Newman in the the movie Cool Hand Luke had a very famous saying. He says, what we have here is a failure to communicate. He said that right before they shot him. (laughs) What we have here, men, is a failure of leadership. Men, we not to preach last week's message again, not to beat a dead husband, so to speak, but where are you lacking courage and conviction when you know deep down in your soul how God is calling you to step into that place. Now, the fall also does affect women. Ladies, I want you to look at verse 16. Let's all look at verse 16. We didn't read this either. But part of God's curse upon Eve that he addresses under... See, we, we see this. It doesn't absolve just because the man... Ladies, please hear this. Just because the man was responsible 
Does it mean that Eve wasn't culpable for her actions, for what she did within the context of the garden? And this is what God is addressing. He says, women, your desire will be for your husband. And and that's not a good thing. See, what God initially created for men and women to be in loving, complementary relationship with one another, where the man is to be the leader and to love and to serve and to give his life just as Christ gave his life for the church. And women were to entrust, to encourage, affirm, to come under that godly leadership, to help him, to lift him up. Basically, God's saying, I'm going to turn all that upside down. Ladies, you're, you're, the men in your life are either going to be harsh and overbearing, or they're going to be passive and permissive. But either way, your temptation is going to be to run after or control. That is what the word desire means. You see, because of men's brokenness, ladies, there is a, there's a, there's a, a corresponding brokenness that happens in your life as well. See, because of men's failures, let me say this. Women, you're going to be constantly tempted to supplant your husband's authority and role. See, the spirit of the age is not going to help you on this point. The spirit of the age is like, forget him. Take control, get empowered, take initiative over your own life. Do what Eve did, which is do what is right in your own eyes. Do what seems good all in an effort to move you towards independent, autonomous, arbitrary decisions. In other words, away from oneness. Now let me say this, ladies, a a very, very strong disclaimer. If there is physical abuse in your home or sexual abuse, violence, infidelity, unrepentant addictions, you are going to play a unique role in that way. You're going to be called to the, to the front lines in a unique way. And we don't have time to go into all the particulars, but this is something where God, I believe, would have you entrust yourself to the body of Christ, to faithful men, to worthy men who can come alongside of you and can help, guide, steer, counsel, direct. But... My estimation of these things, while all those things are more common than we hoped they would be or wish they would be, they're not the rule, not typically. Which I think, women, a lot of times you face this temptation that your husband's passivity or his overbearingness has tempts you to become the spokesperson, the leader, um, the, 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 the standard bearer of your marriage. And oftentimes, men will not lead until they know that they are the only ones who will. Consider 1 Peter 3. Peter writes this to not just Christian women married to deadbeat husbands, but Christian women married to deadbeat pagan husbands. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Let let me say again, however all of these points, ladies, have landed on you, maybe you're a man and this applies to you in some particular way. There's some 
deep, deep, dark, secret thing happening in your home that's, that's hampering your leadership. Wherever you are on this, I believe God would have us entrust ourselves to the community of believers and whether law enforcement needs to be involved or a mentor couple needs to be involved or there needs to be accountability. We want to do that as your pastors and elders. You, last week, we, we announced that in the fall, we're going to be beginning our re-engage marriage ministry, which gives a, 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 how many weeks is it, Scott? 10, 12 weeks? 16 weeks. Okay, even better. What, yeah, I mean, for, for some of us, it would take eight weeks. For some of you, it would take 16 weeks. But 16 weeks of walking through a marriage mentoring program, and, and more information is going to be available about that. We just acknowledge these are complex things. We, we acknowledge that there's not <laughs> things that we can't speak a simple word in a, in a single sermon and address every issue. But I believe the point is the same. That Satan, at the greatest point of magnificence, the apex of creation, the marriage relationship, who God has made us to be as men and women, that's where he goes. And the breakdown of the marriage is the breakdown of everything. So what do we do? What do we do? Last point. This is where what I'm going to say about our response to brokenness and sin certainly applies to marriage, but not just marriage. It applies to everyone in every kind of relationship with every kind of sin. The pattern that we see exhibited by Adam and Eve is just universal. It's ubiquitous. It's what we default to. And we can learn something about this wherever we are on this spectrum. So what did Adam and Eve do? Look at verses 7 and 8. It says that, The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now listen to this. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. Simply put, it tells us that they ran. They hid. They covered up. They've got in the proverbial corner of the room with their hands over their heads. I see, hear, and speak no evil. See, it was the shame of Adam's passivity. It was the shame of Eve's impulsivity that caused them to run as far away as they could. Now listen, from the very person who could most help them. Reminds me when I was um, four or five years old, living in Eastridge, Tennessee, and, and I had developed a, a strong aversion to mayonnaise up to that point in my life. And, and I'm happy to say that that aversion has grown to an outright detestation of anything that smacks of that dreaded paste. I hate the stuff. I pray in precatory psalms upon it, okay? But, but at this point in my life, it was just a strong aversion, but Remember, I was at next door neighbor's house and at a little birthday party, and they served us. Remember, in the 70s, 
They didn't care. They just served you bologna and cheese. You remember that? Okay, and the white bread, the Wonder Bread. And so I did what every four-year-old knows to do. You lift up that bread, and you look under the bologna, and you see what's under there. And there I saw it was this big glop of white nastiness, okay? And so I did what would be reasonable for any four-year-old growing up in East Ridge, Tennessee. I simply put the sandwich down and ran back to my house as fast as I could. I don't know why that sandwich was covered with shame, but it was covered with shame, and I was running away. Now, of course, my mom gently guided me back to to the party, and I sat there and watched the mom as she remade the sandwich without the mayonnaise. But the point was, I was running away from the very person who had the best and greatest capacity to fix what was wrong for me. See, I want you to see the same thing for Adam and Eve here. See, their response to sin, their response to shame, moves them away from the very person in the garden who could most help them, and that was God. Instead, they do what we do, right, in sin and shame. First of all, they, they, they try to fix it. They, 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 they took these fig leaves, and I, I don't even know what, what this was about. I mean, like, how did they get them to stick together? Did they lick one side and clamp it down on the other, or did they, I, a little dirt? Or I mean, I mean, you could imagine it was absurd, it was ridiculous. I mean, if God wasn't so greed, you know he would have to laugh when he saw them sort of huddled with these leaves, these loincloths all around them. But then they were hiding and of course, that's what we do. We, we vacillate between these two things. When we're shamed, when we're in sin, we're either running to hide or we are running to fix or we are running to cover up. But most oftentimes, not running to the very person who can most help us. See, here is where the gospel is all in Genesis chapter 3. See, God doesn't obliterate them. God doesn't consume them with holy fire. God God doesn't walk away from them. He doesn't simply kick them out of the garden. He does do that, but never to be heard from again, for them to wander the face of the earth and to multiply and then just have sin run rampant. No, no, no. That's not what God does. First of all, God pursues them. It says that God is walking in the garden. This idea is that is that God's not coming to hurt them. He is coming to confront them. He is coming to ask direct questions in which he wants direct answers. But God is walking. He is calling out. He is pursuing. See, it's the grace of God in this passage that pursues them, entreats them, and as we'll see in a couple of weeks, promises redemption for them. In verse 21, which I think is just uh, maybe the most underrated verse, one of the most underrated verses in the Bible. We didn't read it, but I'll read it here. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Why is that significant? Because God's saying, Adam and Eve... You've sinned wickedly, and and there is judgment and consequences for these things. But these little piddling efforts that you're making 
to clean yourself up, to hide from me, to clothe yourself, to make yourself right. No, 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 no. Only my garments are sufficient for you. Only, only my clothes, on, only my skins, only my grace is sufficient for covering your shame. You see, really what we have is a faith issue when we sin. Are we going to run towards God or away in all these ways that we have been describing? The same thing maritally, by the way. Where marriage can oftentimes multiply the shame because it's being lived out right in front of someone else. See, marital healing, I believe, begins by acknowledging our failures, our deceits, our sins, with other honesty before God and before each other. Owning, coming out of hiding, not blaming, confessing. Let me say, Pastor Paul, that is so hard. That, there is, seems so much <clears throat> at stake in this. There, that seems so risky. I don't, how do I, how, what do I do? It begins by saying first and foremost that we have a gracious Savior who says, I know you're covered in sin and shame, but just run to me. And I've got garments for you. And these are the garments of Christ. They're the, right, they're the very righteousness of Christ that I, I long to, to, to put around you, to clothe you in, to hide your shame, to hide your nakedness, to hide your guilt so that I can restore you to fellowship with me. And then we'll go to work on some of these other relationships. But right now, will you run to me? the only person in the garden who can help you. Because as we get ready to come to the table this morning, we are acting out the reality that the garments that we have made for ourselves of sin, shame, hiding, fixing, blaming, obfuscating are not sufficient. The only thing sufficient for us and our sin and our marriages, and our brokenness is the righteousness of Christ that he freely, freely offers you this morning. After the service today, tell us how we can pray for you. Tell us how we can come alongside of you. Tell us if we can meet with you and talk more about these things. Let's pray.